0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are going to talk about geotech politics. We're going to look at the politics of technology and how in particular it shapes the idea of European power. And I'm very happy to be welcoming an all-star cast to take part in this discussion. First up, we have Maritja Schraker, who is the International Director of Policy at Stanford's Cyber Policy Center, is also a board member of ECFR, former member of the European Parliament. And in fact, one of the, according to Politico, she is one of the, the top tech voices in, in Europe who has made a, a name for herself as, uh, as a tech whisperer in Silicon Valley. And also back to the podcast, we have Ulrike Franke, who is a senior policy fellow at ECF Arm, as well as Jose Ignacio Blanca. Who is also a senior policy fellow at ECFR as well and head of our Madrid office? Rika and Nacho are also the joint editors of a new ECFR report, which is much uh, recommended to everyone called "GeoTech Politics: Why Technology Shapes European Power." Thank you very much all for joining.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Let's start with the with the big picture. Uh Maricha, you're um sitting on the fault line of all of these big debates. You've been looking at it as a politician for many years and as a regulator, but you're now um spending a lot of time in Silicon Valley and seeing I think that gives you a ringside seat at the competition between uh these two technological hyperpowers, the US and China. How Is that competition developing? Has something changed since the Biden administration took office?
2: Well, I don't think that much has changed, which is interesting because the United States is so deeply divided politically. And the one thing that there's quite a bit of agreement around is, frankly, the the threat and competition In the space of tech and, you know, related uh, in the space of intelligence, production, supply chain, standard setting power uh, coming from China. Of course, what is different under the Biden administration, and we've felt it very clearly as Europeans, is the relationship with the EU. Under President Trump, it was difficult. It was confrontational. It was not collaborative. And there was also a bit of pressure on the EU to follow the US's line on Huawei and network technology, for example, whereas with the Biden administration, there is a tone of collaboration, joint statements as recently uh, as, as this week after President Biden met Chancellor Merkel. And as part of their statement, something unimaginable a couple of years ago, they came out saying that they would support norms to protect democracy around governing technology.
0: And if you look at the next phase, and we'll go into this more deeply with Nacho and Rika, but what do you think the the kind of biggest battlegrounds are from a European perspective, which are going to affect us?
2: Well, the EU has a real challenge in actually producing technologies and marrying its geopolitical ambitions with its technological narrative drive regulations. In Brussels, you will often hear a celebration of the regulatory superpower, the Brussels effect, the notion that the EU is uh, on top of its game when it comes to proposing uh, legislation. And, you know, I believe preserving values, fair competition is very important, but it cannot be the only agenda. And what I'm really missing is a sense of urgency of connecting that regulatory agenda to geopolitical interests and growth. Uh, One example is, is, of course, the whole discussion around Huawei and network technologies, where it took about a year to come up with an ad hoc toolbox of how to deal with risk, because the single market on the one hand and 27 different national security considerations on the other hand create friction and really hinder the EU to act as one geopolitically and to move ahead in this cutthroat competition, where, as you said in your introduction, the US and China are The power blocks. The EU is not even really up there uh, between them. And that is something to really think about as European leaders sitting in Brussels.
0: Great. So, Nacho Enrique, your report's all about what the EU needs to do if it doesn't just want to be a bystander. And you talk about two particularly uh, troubling groups of issues, the new dependencies which you see Europe entering into, and also some of the ways in which our technologies provide ways for other states to interfere in our own affairs. Maybe we could go through those in a a systematic way. Nacho, do you want to go first and, and tell us about some of the new dependencies that you outline in the policy brief?
3: Well, there are, there are, of course, these issues um, that we've been um, discussing now for quite a while, um, like AI and, 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 and 5G and, and cables, uh, also standards, um, uh, which are also very important. And again, foreign influence operations and uh, disinformation, military AI, I mean, all kind of network technologies, as, as Mariette has said. I mean, we can go into the details of this. But I think the, the important bit of, of this paper is not that we try to make a to come up with a list and an analysis of each and every one of them. But as Marietta was saying, call the attention over the fact that the Brussels effect, it kind of may not work this time because, you know, if uh, now tech has become openly geopolitical and, and the Brussels effect with GDPR and other issues happened at a time in which the U.S. was not looking and was not caring and was not uh, thinking that regulating big companies was a deeply political issue. Now everyone is aware about you know the impact of technology, and as when we enter into a kind of cold war in technology, at least we all know that these things matter. I mean, in a sense, we've we've blown it up ourselves by talking so much about a superpower, you know, regulatory superpower. That others have said, "Hey, look, you know, what, what are these guys doing? I'm not going to let them uh, become a superpower." regulatory superpower. I want to do my stuff and I want to take my choices and and my decisions on on, on these issues. And the EU may take now like two, three years to finalize. Uh, Marietta knows this well because she's been at the European Parliament. You know, how many things are open at this time at the European Parliament? How long will they take? And to which extent are they incorporating this sense of urgency on these issues? You know, the US is not going to wait for Europe to produce legislation to regulate US companies and US critical technologies in order to to sustain this competition with China. They're gonna act and they're gonna either clash with us or circumvent us or leave us behind, right?
1: Yeah, Sorry. and maybe to, to add to that, if I can, I mean, I think the main message, not just of this paper, but but I guess of ECFR's work on technology in, in general is that Europe really needs a change in mindset when it comes to technology, because it's not as if, you know, we aren't working, we as European Union and as member states aren't aware that there's a technological change that we need to work on. There are lots of strategies, you know, the digital decade and all of this to build up uh, capabilities within the European Union union and and the same is true for member states but we believe that there needs to be a change in mindset when it comes to yeah the geopolitical implications of this this rise of new technologies so um and and, and very broadly speaking i basically basically see two first technology influences um, our relationship with other actors, with external actors, with third actors, right? We mentioned the United States, China, very different type of um, actor, but, but also with, say, countries from the developing world or countries in the immediate neighborhood of, of Europe. So we need to make sure that in our dealings with those countries, we think about, you know, to what extent tech is an element of our relationship with these countries, what role does tech play in trade agreements, for example, And we need to make sure that, yeah, as as we mentioned earlier, that we don't leave room for new dependencies being created not only in Europe, but also in these kind of third country, partner countries um, of Europe. And the second element, um, in addition to this external partnership element, is really the impact that technology has on Europe's own geopolitical power. And this is something that you know the EU doesn't really think so much in terms of geopolitical power. It's changing a little bit. I mean, we, we and we've talked about this here on the podcast, and ECFR has been writing about this. I mean, there is a bit of a realization that that we are back in a world where geopolitical power matters, and and that we need to think about this. So I think there's. A slow change in thinking in Brussels, um, but it hasn't really reached the tech realm so much yet. And in the Member states, I don't really think that this is something that's you know high high up on the agenda. And when you look at what member states do, for example, when it comes to artificial intelligence and what they say and what they write, it's quite clear that they don't really see, technology as something that influences their own or the EU's geopolitical power. And, and that's what we're trying to tease out and to make sure that this is something that's being realized in Brussels, but also in, in Berlin, in Madrid and elsewhere. I mean, I'd say in, in Paris, it's maybe best understood, but there are lots of places where this isn't really high up on the agenda.
0: So Marisha, um Nacho started off talking about this whole like, question of the Brussels effect and regulatory superpower. You've had a lot of direct impact of discussions around regulations as a European parliamentarian, you're now in Silicon Valley a lot of the time, which is increasingly having to face up to the fact that this unregulated space is going to have to deal with a lot of rules in the future. how possible is it for Brussels to be setting the rules if it's not actually developing any of the technologies itself? Uh, particularly given that many of these technologies, five G um, and other elements, are, um, are being rolled out around the world in ways which have non-European standards kind of baked into them.
2: Well, first of all, you're absolutely right that in the US a lot is changing, and maybe that can also create a sense of urgency, additional urgency in the EU, both member states and Brussels. In the US, there's a whole host of antitrust cases. There's been an executive order on cybersecurity. So this whole notion that the US is hands-off is changing rapidly. And I think Brussels should take note because even this prided super regulatory posture is no longer uh, the monopoly of the EU. Then is the EU capable of you know, advancing its interests and and setting the standards that that it needs to, I think it could. Uh, and I agree that this awareness, and I would add vision, is really important for that, because there are a lot of opportunities that the EU basically has in front of it. So let me give you one example after the G7. One of the announcements that came out is that the G7 countries were interested in offering an alternative to uh, the, the Belt and Road and the Silk Road that China has. Whereas the EU remains the most significant development donor and partner in the world, and has this incredible opportunity to make sure that there's not only thought about how to make sure that there's IT infrastructure uh, on the African continent, but that there is also uh, considerations of the kinds of laws that are needed to protect people's data. A lot of developing countries do not have data protection laws, and it really hurts the people living there. And makes them vulnerable for becoming launch pads of cyber attacks elsewhere in the world, makes them vulnerable for alternative types of investments that are less secure. And so it's not only about doing new things, which is important, you know, how are we going to deal with geopolitics and artificial intelligence, how do we both protect European-based semiconductor industry and uh, develop it further, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also about using the opportunities where the EU has a strength and can easily build on it if it only had sort of the, the foresight to make sure that this is you know, helpful and an opportunity waiting waiting to be plucked. I was frankly a little bit frustrated that it was the G7 that put this opportunity on the agenda and not the EU.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um. And what does that mean in in some of the new areas which are coming on board? I mean, Rika, you're working a lot on artificial intelligence. You've talked about that a a little in this podcast. How does the the EU's new uh, attempts to set AI regulation fit into uh, this bigger picture? Is there a kind of hope that the EU could become a global leader in the development of of trustworthy and ethical AI?
1: Hmm. there's definitely the hope. Um, and I don't think this is misplaced. Um, we just need to work hard on this. So on the one hand, I agree that, you know, it's a bit tricky to say we're going to be the regulators of a technology we're not primarily developing. Like that's not the strongest position to have. So I would very much support, you know, trying to develop um, things yourself as well. But that being said, because the EU is a big market, um, it's not completely, let's say, ridiculous to to put in place these regulations either. And in fact, you know, the the new AI regulation that the, the European Commission put out is in fact, you know, the world's first quite comprehensive AI regulation. And a lot of countries are thinking about this. And this really is the main difference between what we're seeing with the AI regulation now and what we saw, for example, with, with GDPR, right, the, the the data privacy rule that, that the EU put together in, in 2018, where it was more or less alone thinking about these issues. And therefore, yeah, there was very little competition. I think this is going to be different um, for AI now. So it may be harder to to make sure that people follow um, our ideas and our norms and our rules, but it's not impossible. And I have to say, I very much support the approach to focus on, yeah, what's called ethical or trustworthy AI um, in the way that the European Union does that. And that's for two reasons. Number one, this is genuinely good. Like This is a genuinely good idea for, I want to say, humankind. I do genuinely believe that if we have more data protection, if we have AI that's that's developed in an, in an ethical and trustworthy way and employed in an ethical and trustworthy way, this is actually good for, for everyone. So I support this as a general goal. But also, and this is something I kind of feel we don't think about enough sometimes, this can be massively good for the EU as a kind of location advantage, right? This idea of saying... AI made in Europe is trustworthy and is ethical, and people know this. I think eventually, in the kind of medium term, this can definitely be uh, something that, that people recognize as oh, this is actually great, and we rather want AI made in Europe or AI regulated in Europe, even if it may be, for example, more expensive than AI made in China, where you know you have no idea what you, what, what's being done with your data. So I think I think that that the EU is is actually pursuing a right goal. But again, I think it's important to kind of not just put out these regulations and then kind of, you know, see what it does in the world. And I feel that the Brussels effect is sometimes being seen as this kind of automatic magical thing that somehow happens. I think the EU needs to be more conscious um, of the fact that this is something you need to actively work on. Again, you may not want to include things like that in in trade agreements, an agreement with third partners. You need to make sure your member states are on board. So so again, it's very much a, a kind of change in mindset, if you like.
3: I mean, I think it's very interesting that as as, as Ricky points out when, when she speaks about AI, that this is falling mostly under the domain of economics ministries across Europe, whereas in the US, what we've seen is this major AI report conducted under the National Security Council guidance. And and this is for a good reason in terms of, uh, you know, the Sputnik moment on AI and, and all of these things. But also, as Riki said, it's not enough, and Marisa and as well, it's not enough to sit down and, and write down the rules of ethical AI. You need to actively explore 4th. AI, ethical AI to other countries. You know, we see that at present we're counting sixty countries that are receiving surveillance technology from China, which is mostly based on AI. So you know you need to go out and it's not just as a city, the process effect, our regulations are great, come and see us and copy that. No, we have to actively put money behind that to counter that. So all these alliance of democracies and which which we know is very difficult and, and raises many issues. And this is why we we are proposing the idea that the EU should set up a, a tech compact in the sense that, you know, what is the offer that the EU has to countries? What is What has the EU offered to the world other than just passively regulate them without having asking them beforehand or coming to them afterwards? You know, there are many countries out there that could see with interest such an offer should be comprehensive along connectivity, but also including values embedded in, in those technologies and loans and all of these things. You know, we should play that also externally. So,
0: one of the big questions, Marietje, is, is whether we could see democracies coming together and, you know, the US, the EU, India somehow developing. Standards and norms for AI and for other areas of technology that are in line with with our open societies. How realistic do you think that is?
2: Well, it's a it's a goal that I certainly advocate for, but we have to be very clear about the standards of democracy as well. And we have problems in Europe, problems in the US, problems in countries like India. Uh, so it's it's important to really look at how strict we want to be or how big we want to create the, the circle of democracies vis-a-vis the threats that are growing and that are obvious from more authoritarian models of governance. And whether it's a coincidence or not, but it's something that deeply worries me, is that for the past decade, there has been extraordinary technological disruption and decline of democracy worldwide. Mm-hmm. And that relationship really needs to be explored further because... I worry not only about the rise of authoritarianism, whether online or offline, but I also really worry about the erosion of agency on the part of democratic governments vis a vis large tech corporations. It is often companies that know more about threats to national security that are in a position to even understand the technology. So, when we're talking about this whole policy agenda and the need for more urgency and more tangible plans and a compact, You know, I I think these are all, all great ideas. We have to ask ourselves in what position are the democratically elected and democratically accountable representatives to comprehend and to share the knowledge of and about the technology with the public? How do we preserve public values in our democracies? And I think if those questions aren't answered, it will be really hard to lead. And in the case of the US, it will be really urgent to have a vision of a model. I mean, you can say what you want about the European Union's Uh, various regulatory initiatives, but at least there is an idea of what the EU wants to do. In the US, the approach for the longest time has been to have a hands-off approach, and that really makes it hard to negotiate globally, because what are you advocating for? I mean, how are you going to defend a vacuum of regulations? And so the US also needs to come up with a stronger, proactively articulated vision of how it sees... This governance model, which, you know, I'm happy to see President Biden weaving into statements all the time. I mean, he refers back to the need to defend democracy also in the context of tech governance. Now, the next step is how and then we can see whether there can be tangible partnerships with the EU and other democracies, which I hope can be achieved.
0: Okay. So we've been talking quite a lot about the whole question of, of these dependencies, how to avoid them. The question of setting standards in the policy brief. You look a lot specifically at five G and undersea cables as part of that. But the other big element, which I think comes out of the discussion we've been having about democracy, is about foreign interference in our own affairs and whether new technologies creates vulnerabilities for our democratic models, for our information sphere, for our public life. And that's obviously something which there's been a lot of debate about over the last few years. I think they're now sitting in the last three or four years, there have been 34 elections which have been interfered with by external powers. Uh, over a billion people have had their votes undermined in some ways as a result of of this interference, even if it hasn't actually changed the results of any elections. So that's not clear. Um, it certainly changes people's attitudes towards uh, democracy and, and has a, a corrosive effect on people's faith in democracy. Do you, do you want to talk a bit about how you see those things? Maybe Rico and Nacho, you can talk a bit about how you lay it out in the policy brief, and it'd be great to hear Maricha as a practitioner giving her perspective as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I agree that this is a concern. I think what happened in a way is that early on, I want to say, you know, something nineties, two thousands, and I think there was a bit of a bit of a hype as to what technology could deliver for the democratization of the world, right? We had Arab Spring, Facebook revolutions. Uh, we had this idea that, you know, China will in no way able to um, limit or control the internet. And so therefore, this is going to contribute to democratization. And, and so we good. had all like these...
0: Bill Clinton said it was like yeah. nailing jello to the wall. Exactly that.
1: Maybe. Yeah, yeah. This is still a, a very famous quote. And so I think I think there was a lot of hype and yeah, a bit, bit overhype if if you want. And I think now the pendulum is swimming, swinging in the other direction, which means that I agree that technology can kind of supercharge things like foreign interference, cyber attacks, disinformation, However, these aren't primarily technology problems, right? I mean, we had disinformation and propaganda before. Now it's kind of worse with deep fakes, for example, or indeed, you know, you use cyber attacks to collect information and then you use AI to kind of influence people, things like that. That's that's all a concern. But I, I'd be a bit wary, a bit a bit be careful to to not mix, you know, the the problem and the and the, and the technology. I, I agree that this is a concern I share basically, um, and this comes back to educating people both you know the general public but also policymakers i think in europe we should think a lot about how do we educate policymakers more about technologies how do we how do we train people um i i i recommend basically creating a kind of european center that runs uh, regular trainings for for policymakers things like that so i think that this can this can all help but i think that the challenge is there and we need to address it but i don't have a great um response in a way you know there is To some of the technological um, challenges when it comes, for example, to disinformation, there are actually technological solutions. So, for for example, AI-enabled deepfake videos can, in fact, be identified by technology and and shown to be disinformation by technology. But, of course, this doesn't get rid of the the problem of disinformation um, in general.
0: Nacho, do you want to add anything else from your perspective? I think you know if you go back to
3: I think it's very revealing when you go back to Hannah Arendt's uh, book, which is came out after I mean the essay on truth and and politics, you know, and it came in out um, as the Pentagon Papers were. Uh, lowest moment of trust in American politics. Uh, we are kind of again back to that moment in which we consistently see, for example, in the last um, Edelman trust barometer, the social media industry is the least trusted of all sixteen economic activity sectors. All whereas two-thirds of the citizens uh, do not trust anymore any traditional media. So, you know, it it is fundamental that democracy uh, cannot work without trust, without truth, and without a healthy public space. And and this has been known for quite a while, uh, but the way foreign actors have understood this in a much deeper way that we've done, they've done it earlier and better, and we are late again you know, on on this issue, to be able to destroy public trust and experts and, and, and institutions and, and so on, so I think the EU has been so far good at denouncing foreign influence and all these campaigns, but I think it has been very weak at putting the tools to help others and to help democracies do this as well it is this of course very complicated because you touch on on, on 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 freedom issues at home, constitutional issues which are very sensitive um, but I think we know now that uh, the public space is absolutely essential for, for democracy. And as Maria said, there is no coincidence that we are on a 15-year consecutive decline of both the quantity and quality democracies coinciding with the destruction of the public space by, by all these technologies.
0: So Marija, you obviously had to deal with a lot of these issues firsthand as one of the the most techno-savvy legislators in Europe beforehand. But since then, you've been thinking big thoughts about about the future of democracy and how technology impacts on that. How do you see these issues developing from a European perspective?
2: I worry a great deal because it's essentially easy, and I don't want to, you know, Make anything small because it's a big problem, but it's easy to conclude that foreign interference in elections are a problem. What is much harder to even grasp is how the business models of data harvesting, data selling and buying, manipulating, uh, disinformation, but also nudging and profiling people and matching people with each other in groups has an effect on the public debate and the political process. Sure, we can say and we do need stronger laws about political advertisements, stronger laws about the financing of political parties to avoid undue interference, but is a series of ads produced by an NGO about the risks of immigration uh, a series of political ads, or is it simply uh, a legitimate set of messages that are sponsored? these types of dynamics that have been facilitated and in that sense i do believe we have a very new reality we have left the governance of our public and democratic debate to advertising companies and i hear all the the frames of the public square and you know the online debate but essentially their incentives their goals Uh, their prioritizing of how they tweak their business models and algorithms are geared towards completely different destinations than the principles of a democracy. And that is where I worry the most because these are very hard questions. And at this moment in time, a lot of the governance of our public debate is happening intransparently, invisible to academic researchers, invisible to journalists, invisible to think tankers, invisible to parliamentarians. And so I feel like we haven't even began to truly grab, you know, by the horns, this big problem and the anecdotes that we have heard from whistleblowers, from investigative journalists, from uh, ex-employees of these companies are deeply troubling, but we have to have a better sense of what is actually going on. And I think that needs to be forced that, you know, access to meaningful access to information in the interest of independent oversight, in the interest of independent research and scrutiny has to be forced with rules because the, The time in which, you know, nice promises were made and self-regulation seemed viable is far behind us. This is too serious of a problem. And uh, I hope that with the very, very unfortunate and dramatic storming of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, the awareness has hit home in the United States that democracy is at stake. It's not just about market rules and antitrust, it's really about democracy being at stake.
0: And as Europeans, what, what can we do apart from hoping that the Biden administration takes this seriously? I mean, they seem to be taking it much more seriously than, than their predecessors. And some of the appointments that have been made are, are very uh, heartening. They're people who seem to be very, very committed with a lot of expertise. But beyond that... What can Europeans actually do about this? Is this something which can be done at a pan-European level or is it more something that member states have to do on their own, hopefully in cooperation with each other rather than in competition with one another?
2: Well, I too am very happy with uh, the appointment of people like Lena Khan and and Tim Wu because it is a game changer to have People with that vision uh, uh, at the helm of, of antitrust policies but what we are doing differently in the eu compared to the united states is to directly regulate for the preservation of democracy through a democracy action plan through new provisions in um, the digital services act with regard to access to information in the interest of doing research so if you ask about the current moment some of these regulations are not yet in place, but if we anticipate that they are coming, I do think they'll help. But you're absolutely right; the EU level cannot decide on all of these crucial but also sensitive matters with regard to transparency about party financing, uh, advertising rules. Some of them are, are are nationally based. You know, media law is often uh, a national competence, and um, I hope that there will be leadership from member states as well not so much to have governments directing what can and cannot be said online. I think it's often a misconception that that is what regulation looks like, but it's much more about transparency from the companies, uh, independent oversight of companies to have a better sense of what is and is not happening. I mean, overstating the effects of disinformation and foreign, foreign interference is also harmful. So it's really important to get this right and to have the ability to get this right.
0: So these are all huge topics. I think we've probably come as far as we can in a single podcast to identifying them. Uh, Lots of ideas of concrete things that the EU can do, should do. Um, I think that if there's a single message, it's about having a different mindset and seeing how important these issues are, not just as economic issues, but as ones to do with the future of our politics. And in fact, to also look at them from a geopolitical perspective. And that question about the geopolitics of of technology is one which we're increasingly working on at ECFR through all of our regional programs. But the initiative on politics and geopolitics and technology, which this policy brief is is launching, is, is going to be something which I hope will grow and grow. And we very much like to work with lots of others on that. And I can tell you for free now that that we will take full advantage of of some of the great brains involved in in uh, in the council as well as on our staff, including Maricia, as we as we kind of move forward in this domain. However, we still have one thing left to do on this podcast, and that is our bookshelf segment. Rika, what's on your bookshelf at the moment?
1: After what uh, Maricia just said, I also want to re-recommend Susanna Zuboff's uh, Surveillance Capitalism, which I've already recommended on this podcast, but, but it's very much in line with what Marice Marie said and, and something that everyone should have read. But that came out a few years ago. So I, I instead, I'm going to recommend a book that is uh, very new, so new, in fact, that I bought it today. So I haven't read it yet, but it touches upon the topics, A, that we discussed namely technology, but specifically AI, which is what I work on, but also specifically military AI. So the use of AI in the military realm. And the book is Kenneth Payne's I War Bot, The Dawn of AI Conflict. Again, I haven't read it yet, but it looks incredibly interesting. I know Kenneth's writing, he's he's based at, at King's College London. And so I'm very much looking forward to that.
0: Okay, what about you, nacho?
3: Well, I mean, maybe it's surprising, but I would go I'm going to very old book eighteen fifty four Walden or Life in the Woods by Henry David Thoreau. This is something I have always wanted to read. I've started reading it as I prepare for summer. And it's quite amazing about, you know, contrary to what we do all day now to speak about technology and and so on and the future and so on. This is about the essential facts of life and how can you live maybe, you know, in nature learning from this very basic stuff. So I think it's kind of a cleaning up of all the work behind on tech. So as I prepare for summer. And
0: what about you, Maricha?
2: So the pile of books that I've not yet read that I really want to read is growing so fast that this is actually a painful question, but I have taken the one uh, that I really look forward to reading, and that is called Mistrust by Ethan Zuckerman, who is doing incredible work to also reimagine the internet. So as ECFR embarks on this new project about geopolitics, technology, and the role of of Europe and foreign policy, I really think looking at his work, the whole idea that we can also build better and not just make policies is, is really inspiring. And The subtitle of his book is Why Losing Faith in Institutions Provides the Tools to Transform Them. So it's also really great to look at innovating democracy itself, and not only looking at either threats or solutions coming from from tech. So I look forward to reading.
0: Wonderful. Well, we'll put up links to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu slash podcast, where you can also read the policy brief, which Rika and Nacho have written. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do subscribe. And if you have time and are feeling warm about the world, maybe you could also take the time to give us a positive review and a five-star rating. But for now, from Maricha Schraker, Ulrika Franca, Jose Ignacio Torreblanca, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and our editor is Oz Russell.